0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, 10:45 service. How are we doing? There's the energy. It's, good. it's going. It's going. It's bringing it together, which is great. So, started off a little rough. Then singing, the announcements. So now you're ready to go. Uh, which I'm excited about. So if I've not met you yet, my name is Justin Wellem. I'm one of the elder candidates here at Fathom Church. If you're new to Fathom or relatively new, you know that our pastor Chris and his wife Marcy are on sabbatical throughout the summer. So throughout the summer, you'll be hearing from the elders, staff members, and some guest speakers. And you have me today, which I'm really excited about. I was gonna say this, is my first time preaching, but now I am a veteran. It's my second time preaching. So I am a veteran. Really excited to work with you all and to talk about the passage today. In my day job, I work as a school administrator. So this is the first time actually speaking to a mostly attentive audience, which I'm really excited about. Um, If you know any teachers, they typically try and multitask when you're teaching. And before I was a school administrator, I was a high school chemistry teacher for five years. And most of my days spent in the high school classroom was trying to convince students to not use the bathroom while I was in teaching, um, to not answer mysterious phone calls from their mothers or fathers or faking life and death illnesses to go to the nurse. Um, so to make me feel more comfortable, feel free to, like, raise your hand randomly, ask to go to the bathroom, try and pull out your phone to text, and I'll confiscate it. i um, really good at just surveying the scene. So, But in all seriousness, like, most of the job that I had when I was a teacher and still now as a school admin is to make the presentation or the lesson super fascinating, gripping, and compelling that they don't want to be on TikTok while I'm teaching. So I think actually today's passage is a little bit of that. It has insults in it. It has demon possession. It has potentially some accusations of racism, desperation, and Jesus giving the title of great faith to a woman. If you are here two weeks ago, this beats the hand-washing drama that occurred there. Um, so let's get after it. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open them to Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. If you're new to us, there's Bibles underneath the chair, and that's on page 821. If you have a phone or a tablet, feel free to open that up. I promise I won't confiscate it if you're at the Bible app. But if you're anywhere else, then I will take it. Just kidding. Um, for those who do not, not know me or my wife, Maddie, very well, she was at first service, we grew up in this ambiguous region called the South. Yes, the South, the place is known for fried chicken, conservative politics, and bless your heart, mothers and grandmothers. Um, If you're from the South, though, there's a vicious debate about who is in the South and who is not in the South. I grew up in Kentucky, and we were definitely in the South. Texas, though, definitely not in the South. They're their own kind of people. Indiana, definitely not in the South. They're a little too Midwestern for us. Mississippi. Yeah, they're in the South. Definitely in the South. We all have that awkward family member. Uh, North Carolina? Uh, Like, what part of North Carolina? Like, West Coast side near the beaches? Definitely not the South. East Coast side near the Appalachian Mountains? Definitely in the South. The irony for me, though, is that I am a transplant to the South. My dad grew up in Toronto, Canada. My mom grew up in Rochester, New York. They've been in college in Rochester. I moved to Louisville, Kentucky when I was seven years old with a slight Canadian accent and a love for hockey. And when I moved to Kentucky, though, a lot of culture shock took in. But the thing that I learned very quickly to adapt that was a non-negotiable that I must learn to appreciate was college basketball. I mean, real college basketball, not the kind that CSU and CU Boulder attempt to play. How many national championships do you have? Zero. So, um, I mean, the University of Kentucky and the University of Louisville the big rivalry that ensued in our state. Basketball games or rivalries were not civil, where switching signs means disownment of not only your friends, but your family. College basketball where season tickets were willed for the next generation. Serious, they were. Um, basketball in Kentucky is a lifestyle and something you just can't get it until you've experienced it. I grew up in Louisville, so I thought it was wise to just cast my lifelong loyalty to the Louisville Cardinals. I grew up watching Rupertino lead the Cardinals to Final Fours and other championships, and then he got involved in multiple scandals, and I decided to switch teams. Um, (laughs) However, I remember one summer, a group of friends from college were visiting a different friend in a place of Kentucky, I'm going to put a slide up here, of the county. The other thing, if you grew up in Kentucky, you don't refer to your city, you refer to your county where you're from, which is another southern thing. And this is G-A-R-A-R-D. Just shout out, how do you think you pronounce this county? It is Gaird County, Kentucky. Welcome to the South. So yes, it's all jumbled together, Garrett County, Kentucky. In the middle of nowhere, my friend told of his family that a few of us were from Louisville or the city. His grandmother pulled him aside and asked in the most serious tone, are you safe with these city folk? <laughs> my friend laughed it off, responded that he was, but I had grandma staring at me the rest of the day, making sure I didn't make any ill remarks about John Calipari or the University of Kentucky. Despite the craziness of this, though, I can appreciate this deep feeling of being on a home team. It's loyalty to, the, to people in Kentucky. You will not find a more loyal sports fan base than in the state of Kentucky. Your home team is everything. You show up for your team with big colors, with displays, tailgating, everything. You are there for your team through the ups and downs, and a promise of next season will be better than the previous season. Maybe this is why there are 10 national championships between UK and UofL, and none between CSU and CU Boulder. Um, home teams are things that we all have, though. This can go beyond sports. Your home team may be your closest friends or family, it may be childhood best friends you grew up with, it could be your coworkers or other people in your neighborhood. Home teams are something that we all strive to have. The concept of being on a team or in a community is something that is universal. Today, in our passage, we're about to see Jesus cross into enemy territory. He is about to defy his home team and do the unthinkable. He's about to be accused of not being loyal or a good teammate. In this case, meaning he's not being a good Jew. In the process, Jesus shows us that he's not here to play the traditional religious game. He's out here for something more. He's about to reinvent the game. This will change everything for the rest of the book. This is why I'm titling the sermon today, Defying the Home Team. Let's go ahead and take a look at the passage and let's read together Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Starting in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, "O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Oh man, this is gonna be a good one. Did Jesus really insult this woman by calling her a dog in front of people? Well, we'll revisit that in a second, but let's take a look at the last two weeks that we've been in this chapter. Two weeks ago, we began Matthew 15, looking at this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. And even here at Fathom, you've been seeing this kind of power struggle between the religious elite and Jesus emerge. Remember the gospel of Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. They were familiar with the laws in the Old Testament. And Jesus spent the first 20 verses of this book doing two things. First, he wanted to show the Pharisees that their Sabbath laws were not actually helping promote the covenant or helping the people. They are creating barriers between them and God. The second thing he wanted to show in the first 20 verses is to show the disciples and others that he's not looking for legalistic behavior, but he's after their hearts. Last week, Our other elder, John Holmes, shared that God isn't concerned about your tradition. If you get your heart right, then you get your life right. We then see in verse 21 that Jesus leaves Jerusalem and enters into what is known as pagan territory of Tyre and Sidon. He's leaving the religious elite and shows us he's not after the tradition of the elders, but goes to the Gentiles. Beyond that, he enters an area that is filled with the people that are known as the Canaanites. Now, who are the Canaanites. When I was researching for this sermon, this is what I found out about the Canaanites. One commentator wrote that the Canaanites, for the most part, were the most persistent and insidious of Israel's enemies. Those whom God had driven out before his people Israel and whose idolatrous religion was a constant threat to the religious purity of the people of Israel. Why were they such vile enemies, though? Well, the Canaanites were descended from Noah's son, Ham. Ham is known as the father of Canaan, and he was cursed in Genesis 9 when he saw his father Noah's nakedness and did not act upon it. If you take a look on the screen, Genesis 9, verses 23 through 25, it says, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah puts a generational lasting curse on Canaan that we see throughout the entire Old Testament. And what do we see happen? The Canaanites became a people that are described as completely and totally wicked. They worshiped foreign gods. They engage in child prostitution. They are known as murderers, violent, and completely and totally wicked. They had no moral compass between them. They were constantly at war with Israel and fighting them, and they were people that were not worth emulating. If you're an Israelite, you were raised to despise the Canaanites. They were dirty, wicked and filled with idolatry. They're your team's biggest rival, the one that you can't stand, those people that just really stand out to you in contrast of who you are as a person. The people of Canaan also stand in contrast to, to the religious lead of the Pharisees we saw in this chapter. They were the ones trying to be pure and the Canaanites were the evil ones. However, the interesting thing that we're starting to see though is that God's promises in the Old Testament are rooted in this land of Canaan. He promised this land to Abraham and this is the same land that we know as the land flowing with milk and honey. The land that was a point of contention for 40 years as people wandered the desert trying to get into the promised land. We already see in the land of Canaan a promise that's foreshadowed even to this day in this passage, that God's kingdom is gonna be beyond Israel and it'll include others that we often did not expect. So this leads me to my first point, which is God's kingdom defies expectations. And we're gonna see two ways how God's kingdom defies expectations in the first couple of verses. Let's take a look back at the passage, verses 21 and 22. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Again, we see that Jesus left Jerusalem, is now in Tyre and Sidon. This story also shows up in Mark 7, and it provides a few more interesting details that I think are worth sharing. On the slides, you'll see verses 24 to 25. And from there, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So putting these two passages together, Jesus enters silently in secret and in disguise and is trying not to draw a crowd. He's attempting to keep a low profile in the region. We've seen Jesus try this a few different times throughout the Gospels. Why is Jesus trying to keep this low profile? The Jews, again, the audience that's directed here, were expecting Jesus to be this conquering Messiah. And when you imagine a king, you imagine someone powerful. You imagine them coming and entering with force. You imagine them making a big scene, big crowds, drawing the attention of the whole people. But what does Jesus do? He does the absolute opposite, he goes quietly. He goes into the most humble areas. He goes into a home and hope no one hears about him. He is here to show us, he's defying our expectations of how he's gonna bring his kingdom to earth. Similar to what the Jews wanted, the Israelites wanted Jesus to seize the promises of the Old Testament in Canaan like they had done previously. Remember, God's promises were centralized on that land of Canaan. Ironically though, when Jesus entered his land, he does so quietly and in secret. Jesus is not here to fill the expectations we have for him. His kingdom is not going to be what we imagine it to be. This is the first way that Jesus shows us that his kingdom will defy expectations. After Jesus enters the region, a woman immediately seeks Jesus out. It is clear that Jesus' popularity has spread throughout the region. This woman must have heard about Jesus and his miracles. She knows that there's something different about Jesus, the urgency of hearing that Jesus was there, caused her to action immediately. She then calls out to him and refers to him as the son of David, a very Jewish title. Very ironic for a Gentile to give that to Jesus. One commentator stated that the woman is doing more than being polite. This is not a mister, a miss, a sir. This is a very deliberate thing that she's doing. She clearly has some knowledge of Judaism and in using a Jewish messianic title, She is hoping to attract the interest of a Jewish teacher who would not expect such a title in a foreign context. By using this flattering title, she perhaps unwittingly draws attention to the irregularity of a Gentile appeal from the help of a Jewish Messiah. Let's pause here and think of how contrasting and how different this would have been in that time. A Canaanite woman, remember the Canaanites, the wicked ones, the evil ones, the vile ones, the Jews' biggest rival goes to the leading Jewish teacher of the day and addresses him with a title, son of David, which was implying that he was the Messiah, the conquering king, the one who's gonna come and take over the region. She's essentially stating that he is the Messiah and reinstate the freedom of Israel. This also acknowledges that her and her people would need to give allegiance back to Jesus. Essentially going to your biggest rival's coach and saying, Hey, champ, hey, king, you're the best. You're the one who I want to give my allegiance to. This is not something that people would have done in this time. This would have also been jaw-dropping to the readers of the gospel. Remember, our Jewish audience here would have probably been offended and bothered by how this Gentile woman addressed Jesus. How dare you call our king yours? He's our king. That's our title for him. He's not yours. You're a Gentile. You don't get the promises of the Messiah. That's what people and the readers would have interpreted from here. Have we felt this way before? Have we taken possession of Jesus that we don't think he belongs to other people? Have we always had a positive outlook when the outcasts of our society show up in our church building? We've looked at the outcast individuals in our society who claim Jesus with a sense of excitement and joy, right? We're being honest. We likely have not always shared the gospel with joy. I know that I haven't. However, Jesus is not here to play the religious game we have seen in this chapter. He's here to defy all the expectations. He's bringing his kingdom not with a force and a complete takeover. He's bringing his kingdom with grace and truth. He's also bringing it to our biggest rival, our most vile enemies. Church, how do we allow God to defy our own expectations of him? how do we open our minds to let God lead and guide us into places we never thought he would enter? What barriers exist in our own lives that prevent God from doing the extraordinary in our lives? This leads me to my next point, which is that God's kingdom is often inconvenient. Let's take a look back at our text at verses 23 and 25. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, "Send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. We see the woman call out to Jesus and Jesus doesn't respond to her. He essentially ignores her. This text doesn't share a lot of details, but imagine this woman exclaiming for relief. It's a mother who is desperate for relief for her daughter. She, again, is defying her cultural upbringing to approach Jesus. She's likely not quiet here. Likely, she's wailing and in torment and distress. Imagine a mother's deep pain over her daughter. She's likely lost sleep, been anxious, worried about her daughter. Demon possession. That's no joke. In an essay by Thomas Sappington, he states that the symptoms of demon possession could include seizures, blindness, psychological disorders, social isolation, and suicide attempts. This demon possession diagnosis would have caused her and her daughter to be on the outskirts of their own community. We can speculate that she potentially has tried other methods to cure the demon possession. Maybe she has consulted her personal gods of the region. Maybe she sought out healing from other physicians. She could have lost money and all financial resources to find healing for her daughter. To come to Jesus, a Jew, would have required complete desperation. She's at the end of her rope. She has nowhere else to turn to. She, again, likely isn't quiet here. She's probably yelling, help, help, help. Somebody save my daughter. Jesus, can you save my daughter? She's likely making a huge scene here. You know that kind of scene. When in the movies, you see someone run into an emergency room and begging for someone to help when they're in a car accident and there's blood everywhere. Or he show up to the hospital ready to deliver a baby and the future mother is in pain and they're wailing and there's agony. This woman is in agony. And how does Jesus respond to her? Silence doesn't even acknowledge her presence. He passes by and keeps going. It may seem cold at this point, but we have to see that Jesus is playing the part of the traditional Jewish leader. He has a larger narrative and a larger lesson he's going to teach us and we're gonna to get to that in a second. But to be this Jewish leader, like we've seen in the first 20 verses, this woman would have been beneath him. She's the biggest rival to the Jews the biggest rival to Jesus in his ministry. Why would he help her? There's no reason why he should acknowledge her. She would have been unclean. The Pharisees, who again, were comparing Jesus to, in contrast, would have never spoken to her. So why should Jesus? He's a religious teacher too, right? To maintain his image, he would have had to disown her. Have we ever felt like this from Jesus though in our own lives? Have we felt like Jesus is silent? Take a look at this slide in Psalm 13, verses one and two. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? And I have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Can we empathize with this woman? Desperate, crying out to Jesus, silence. Can we empathize with David? How long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Have we ever felt that like God, wondering where God is and why he feels so distant and silent? Are you feeling distant from God now? Do you feel like you can't hear his voice? I don't want you to hear that Jesus is purposely going to leave this woman ignored. He's going to enter in and do something miraculous for us. And I want to assure you, that God is here, Jesus is here. And sometimes he may feel silent, but God's kingdom and plan often may feel inconvenient. It may not make sense to us. However, he is always there. His timing and the way he works is different than we can expect. We have to sometimes wait. Thankfully, we don't have to wait too long in this passage. But before we get to the miracle, to stop the scene that is likely happening, the disciples approach Jesus and beg him to send her away. This phrase, send her away, is the same phrase that's used in Matthew 14 when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they ask him to send the people away. The disciples have a reputation of being concerned about their personal image. They want Jesus to stop this woman from exclaiming out loud, just like they wanted Jesus to send the people away with the 5,000 because it was too inconvenient. They're worried about being in this pagan region, having this woman following them. Now, how they wanted Jesus to settle this situation is up for debate. There are two main things that people are speculating about the disciples. Some commentators suggest that the disciples are asking Jesus to just go in and heal this woman and move on. You can imagine them thinking like, just heal his, heal the daughter, move on, let's get on with our lives. Other commentators are suggesting that Jesus should rebuke the woman for a big request like this. Regardless, one commentator wrote that we can assume that 12 strong men could presumably have driven the woman away themselves. They want Jesus to intervene and solve the problems that are this woman. They don't want to get their own hands dirty. It's super inconvenient to lean into the hurt, into the pain, into the brokenness that's surrounded by this woman, they don't want to do anything. They want Jesus to intervene and take over and to do the work himself. We see this pattern throughout the gospel with the disciples. From Matthew 14, the feeding of the the 5,000, when the disciples try to send the people away, you see it again in Matthew 19, when the children come to Jesus and they say, don't bring the children to Jesus, even though Jesus welcomes them with open arms. The disciples have a reputation of not wanting to deal with the problems of their society. It's inconvenient. This woman is a Gentile. She's dirty. It'll make me look bad. It'll make us look bad. It'll make Jesus look bad. How often have we felt this way? We've been presented an opportunity many times in our life to either share the gospel, defend our faith, or help someone, and sometimes we brush it aside. We turn our heads and look a different way. We speed past them in a car. We put our headphones in and blare music to distract. We post on our social media feeds about Christ, but fail to engage our local community. Church, we are not called to be convenient Christians. The kingdom is bigger than us and our own conveniences. The disciples in this moment force Jesus' hand, and he can either enter into this situation and solve it quickly and heal her and move on. Or Jesus can enter in and create a teachable moment and to enter into the brokenness that this woman has before him. Thankfully, Jesus decides to enter into the brokenness and doesn't solve this quickly. Let's look back at verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus replies to her essentially saying, I wasn't sent to people like you. It could be portrayed here as a pretty racist comment here. He's again playing the part of this typical Jewish leader that we saw in the first 20 verses. He is silencer and making a key point here. He's pushing and creating a moment that we're going to see play out in just a second. While there is some precedent here that Jesus as Messiah was called to come to the Jews, he's building something bigger here. He's setting the scene up for the readers and the audience. He's about to make history and expand the kingdom from the Jews to a global kingdom. However, Jesus is first and foremost a teacher. Instead of telling people this, he's going to illustrate it and cause a scene for people to see what's happening. He's about to lean into the inconvenience of the gospel and illustrate a deeper truth that goes beyond the expectations that we have for him. So, so far, if we've learned that Jesus' kingdom Defies your expectations is often inconvenient. There's a final thing that I want us to see is that his kingdom, God's kingdom, is defined by faith and for all. To help illustrate this point, I have to go back to a teaching story that I have to share with you all. One of my favorite teaching strategies is called up the crazy. Yes, that is a strategy that I learned when I was getting my teaching license. What this means is sometimes it's a behavior management strategy where you essentially, if students acting a certain way, you act crazier than them until they de-escalate. It can also be used to teach content. Sometimes it's called being a devil's advocate, which is where you, again, act in a way that's so out of character to make a key point. One of my favorite moments of Up the Crazy was when I was teaching chemistry in Phoenix. We are going over the parts of the atom, and I typically begin the lesson with the history of the atom It traces back, just so you know, to Democritus with indivisible particles, which is really awesome. And throughout history, we get the plum pudding model with J.J. Thompson. We get this, like, core positive energy to our current model, which is Schrodinger's model, which is, like, a cloud of electrons. And we have quarks and leptons and Higgs bosons and dark matter and all these crazy conversations and, secondly, side conversations. But science, it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) However, in this unit... I would start off with a very heated argument with my students, stating I refused to believe in protons and electrons. For disclosure, I do believe in protons and electrons. Just want to throw it out there before you get going. However, remember one year opening up the question with this ambiguous question, what is the world made of? A student, you probably can imagine the type of student, quickly responded with a textbook answer, atoms, said, cool, what are atoms made of? Another student quickly raised her hand. Protons and electrons. I would then laugh uproariously in their face. Ha, protons and electrons? Are you kidding me? Who taught you that? Who told you about these protons and electrons? Shock would come across their faces. I then would keep pushing, who told you that? Protons and electrons, you gotta be kidding me. I would keep pushing and pushing. They would always tell me about their third grade teacher. Their third grade teacher would say, Miss so-and-so taught us about protons and electrons. I then would respond with, you're telling me that an elementary school teacher taught you about protons and electrons and not a scientist like me? You're kidding. Side note, if you're an elementary school teacher, I appreciate you. You are the backbone of our society. (laughs) You teach seven subjects a day to 28 children for eight hours a day. We don't pay our teachers enough. There's my public service announcement to vote for more education funding. Uh, But, but, so I appreciate you and teachers, enjoy your summer. For point of illustration, we're gonna make fun of elementary school teachers. But this is when they got squirmy i like i hit a chord like everyone loved their like third or fourth grade teacher i then go on a rant making fun of their previous teacher saying that they were propagating lies that they are conspiracy theorists and i was here to tell them the truth about science this is when kids would get angry at me like start yelling at me like you're wrong you are completely wrong one year student walked out of my classroom Completely walked out. I had to call their parents saying that wasn't appropriate. That was point of a lesson. Um, (laughs) But but now that I had their full attention, I'd say, okay, if you think that I'm wrong, then you prove it. If you work with high school students, telling them to prove it or competition is one of the best ways to get them really motivated to do anything. So I divide them up into teams. They research and show me experiments how we know protons and electrons exist. They report back and tell me about the cathode Ray tube experiment, the gold foil experiment, radioactivity, Marie Curie, all these kind of things. They show me models, and their final project was to write a letter explaining how much of an idiot I was. And they wrote pages and pages, <laughs> and, pages and pages and used evidence to back it up. It was always a great accomplishment to see how much we transformed and we're able to really make the case of why the Adam exists. Back to our story. I have to imagine Jesus is upping the crazy here a little bit. He is a teacher, and he is showing his disciples that he is not here to dismiss this woman or to solve her problem quickly. He is actually wanting to teach a lesson that we talked about for thousands of years. He's trying to paint a stark contrast to what the Pharisees have been doing to the people in that region for years. And he's doing so by acting the part and being a devil's advocate here. So let's go back to the text. So with that lens, let's see how Jesus is creating a teachable moment here. Verses 26 through 28. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs and fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus again is continuing his point in maintaining the image of the stereotypical Jewish leader and states that he came for the children, which are the Jews, and not for the dogs or the Gentiles. Is this accurate? Is Jesus actually stating what's correct? There is a lot of truth here that Jesus is the bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant and his primary purpose was to come to the Jews first. However, Jesus is using this moment and other moments throughout the gospel to expand the kingdom and to create a new covenant. The in-between, the old and the new that we now live under as Christians in our day. He's the connection between us and God. He's the one who bridges communities and people together. And what's his new covenant defined by? defined by faith and not by the actions of the Old Testament. So then why is Jesus trying to isolate her? Why does he keep pushing her away and pushing her away? He's getting to the point here that he's illustrating how big of an ask this is. This would go against everything that has been established in Israel. Imagine being stated something like this. Do you, woman, realize that if I do this, that I go against my home team? against my people, my heritage. It's social isolation and complete refusal. Do you understand how big of an ask this is for me? And how does she respond? Let's look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet. She's not done. She's not gonna give up. She understands the ask. And she reaches out in faith and says, yet, Lord, I know you're bigger than this. She's beginning to show us the audience that the kingdom is bigger than just the Jews. It's kingdom that is meant for all people. Remember, she's not unfamiliar with the kingdom of God. She referred him as the son of David. One commentator wrote, in refusing to accept the traditional Jewish exclusion of Gentiles from the grace of God, she has shown a truly prophetic grasp of the new perspective of the kingdom of heaven, which is now to be open to people from the East and the West on the basis of their faith, rather than of their racial identity. It is that perception which has won the argument. This Canaanite woman is illustrating the fact that the kingdom of God is defined by faith and for all. She's illustrating that she believes that Jesus is bigger than just being the king of the Jews. He's the king that is for all of humanity. Jesus is also bigger than the king of Fathom, of Littleton, of Colorado, he's the king of the universe and he's bringing his global church to fruition. That's why I want to have Matthew 28 read over us that he is sending us out to build a universal church that is bigger than our own communities here. After this exchange, how does Jesus respond to her? Take a look at verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire and her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus described only two people with great faith in Matthew. One is this woman, and the other is a centurion in Matthew 8, another Gentile. Jesus all along, as a master teacher as he is, had a key point he was going to drive here. He had the up the crazy and act like the traditional Jewish leader to get to that point, but all along, he wanted to use this moment to create a lasting teachable moment that the kingdom is not just for the Jews, it's for all people. He's out here to fulfill the old covenant and to usher in the new covenant and save the Jews and save all of humanity. He's out here to establish a universal kingdom for all humanity that is defined by faith in faith in Christ alone. He's defying his home team that was exclusive in making a bigger team that is more inclusive of a global church community, one that goes beyond race, gender, socioeconomic status, or any other barriers that we put up to prevent prevent people from coming to Christ. So Fathom, where does this leave us? A few key questions of application I wanna leave you all with. First off, who are the Canaanites in your life? Who are those people that you have decided that they are vile, wicked, and not deserving of the gospel? How can we ask God to have a heart like Jesus and see beyond race, gender, culture, socioeconomic status, and see people as creating God's image? This is hard, very hard. I think of myself in that there are so many different moments where I was the one who made a conscious decision to hold back from engaging or deciding that those people were far too on the outside for my time. I still imagine a few people I'm putting in this category. I wanna challenge myself and challenge you all to never underestimate God and the power that he can have over individuals that we have deemed the most lost or undeserving. The Bible's filled with individuals who God has used for extraordinary means and purposes despite their history and tradition. May we allow God to use us to fulfill his global mission rather than pretending to be God and deciding who is in and who is out. Second question, what is preventing you from having faith like this woman? This woman approached Jesus desperate for a miracle and without taking no for an answer. How often do we approach Jesus with true earnestness and faith? God may not answer in a way that we expect, but but may we have a faith that expects that God to show up and act. May we learn from this woman to have a faith that believes fully in God and his promises for ourselves and our community. My third question, how can we today, this week, go out into our communities and even into unfamiliar territory like Jesus did? We need to put ourselves into places where we can see God move and act. This may mean going outside of your traditional Christian bubble or outside of your social circle. Jesus entered Tyre and Sidon and led his disciples there to make a lasting point that God is bigger than our comfort. I challenge you to consider what are the tangible ways that you can interact with individuals who are traditionally outside of the norm? Well, I promised a lesson about race, demons, and insults. I hope you leave here reminded that our God is bigger than each of us, and that what he wants more than anything is our whole hearts and our faith in him. May you go into our week with these thoughts. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Holy Father, I thank you for the opportunity to really dig in and to lean into the inconvenient truth of the gospel that's bigger, bigger than us, is bigger than our community, and that we need to Lean in and to really see people in a way that you saw them, Lord, that you saw every individual as an opportunity to break down those barriers and to really show that the gospel is for all and it's defined by faith. So I pray that as we enter this time of reflection that you bring to light who are people in our lives or moments in our lives that we're putting up barriers, Lord, and I ask that you convict us of that and ask us to take those barriers down and to see people in a way that allows the gospel to penetrate and to really see them as children that are made in your image, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for um, the example that you set for us, and I pray that we go into this week reflective of how we are able to minister to our community. We thank you, Lord. your son's name.